Today's sermon text is Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. And let's read the passage, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the truths that we receive through the prophet Jeremiah in this text. Of a promised new covenant, of a promised salvation that you provide to us through your son, Jesus Christ. We ask that as we gather as that new covenant community, you would bless this time and the, the unfolding of your word, that you would give me wisdom and clarity of mind to explain it, and that your spirit would work in our midst to convict us and to impress a vision of your glorious salvation in the gospel um, on us that we would grow in joy and in pleasure in what you have done for us, and that we would uh, go from here and live our lives with this vision of the great salvation you have provided us in your Son. Amen. Our salvation comes to us in the form of a covenant. Our salvation comes to us in the form of of a covenant. This may be an odd notion to some of us, maybe something we don't typically think about, something a little foreign. God's purposes to save and restore his people and his creation are promised, planned, worked out, and achieved in human history, beginning in what we call the Old Testament. And the covenants that we see throughout that biblical story structure, drive, and advance that salvation plan. What is a covenant? It's not a typical word that we use today, so we need to start with a definition. And there are very complex definitions, but probably the simplest definition that we can start with is that a covenant is a binding agreement involving promises and obligations. A covenant is a binding agreement 
involving promises and obligations between two parties. The biblical covenants aim at and pursue what God's original intention was in creation. So think about the Garden of Eden. God's purpose to have a people in a land under God's rule and amidst God's presence. So the covenant with Noah we begin with. After the flood, God expresses his commitment to creation despite human sin that he just judged. He will not scratch this creation project, but he will redeem it. And he will restore it to its original design. Then we have the covenant with Abraham. God chooses Abraham and expresses to him his plan to bring about his intentions from creation. To have Abraham's offspring now, a new humanity in a promised land, a new garden of Eden. Having saved Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus, based on these covenant commitments, he brings them to Mount Sinai, where he gives them what we call the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant uh, that had Moses as its mediator, or what the New Testament calls the Old Covenant, or what Paul sometimes refers to as the Law. In the Mosaic, or Old Covenant, God says, if you obey me, you will receive the blessings of my covenant plans. You will be my new humanity. You will continue to dwell in my new Eden, the promised land. My presence will continue to dwell among you in the form of the tabernacle and then eventually the temple. And I will rule over you, as the later Davidic covenant eventually explains, through a king from David's line. However, if you disobey, you will receive the opposite of these things. You will receive punishment, the covenant curses. And that's exactly what happens to Israel. She disobeys. And the wages of her sin is national death, exile. God removes her from the land. The temple is destroyed and her king is dethroned. You see, exile in Scripture is not just an unfortunate historical happenstance. It's actually the anti-fulfillment of God's covenant promises to his people. But in the midst of this devastating situation, the prophets predict a new covenant. One to replace and surpass that old covenant. One that resolves the problem of human sinfulness and finally brings about God's covenant plans. And this new covenant is our new covenant. First, we see ourselves in Israel's history. Israel's sinful condition is not just Israel's sinful condition. It's a mirror image of our sinful condition. And Israel's experience under God's specific law of Moses, one of rebellion resulting in judgment, is the story of all of our experience under God's law. Rebellion resulting in due judgment. And second, this solution to Israel's problem of sin, the new covenant, is our solution to the problem of sin. At the Last Supper, Jesus takes the cup and says, This is the blood of the new covenant, referring to his death as that thing which brings about the new covenant. 
And the book of Hebrews, especially chapter 8, as well as many other parts of the New Testament, make clear that Jesus has made this new covenant a reality for his church. As Ephesians 2 says, Gentiles, that is non-Jews, who were once formally separated from God's people and his covenants, are now, are now p- part of those things. Not to the exclusion of God's plan to save ethnic Jews, but to the inclusion of Gentiles as well in this community called the church. And so because of this, the New Testament presents the church as this future people of God, this end-time Israel of which Jeremiah here speaks. The, the, the community, composed not only of Jews but also of Gentiles, that receives this new covenant. And so as we look at our passage, we see that God contrasts this new covenant with the old covenant that he made with the people of Israel at Sinai after he brought them out of Egypt in the Exodus. Look at verses 31 and 32. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers, that is, their forefathers, In the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. They broke the covenant. They deserve judgment. But yet this is not the end of the story. God is faithful to his purposes to restore his people and his creation. And so he promises a new covenant that will address the inadequacies of this former covenant. And notice, the fact that God makes this salvation covenant shows us that salvation is not a human invention. It's not as if things were like, ah, look at this problem we have with sin. Let's come up with a solution. Light bulb. God, you should rescue us. No. The fact that salvation comes to us in the form of a God-made covenant shows us that salvation is God-made. It's His invention. It's of His initiative, not ours. Continuing in verse 33. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. So this is the covenant. He's about to lay it out. What is this covenant like? And if you're familiar with the Mosaic Covenant, if you think about the law in the Old Testament, when you hear this announcement of, a, of, a, of another covenant, a new covenant, you might be expecting that what is to follow is a list of commands, conditionals, and threats of punishment. Do this in order that... And do this or else. But what we get is something rather different. Just promises. And there's four ways, four promises, in which the new covenant is not like the old covenant. In which the new covenant, our covenant, is better than, as Hebrews says, the old covenant. And there are, we should note there are many other passages in the Old Testament and in Scripture that lay out further elements, but there are four specifically in this text that we'll be looking at. And the first one, number one, is that the new covenant, our covenant, 
is a better covenant than the old covenant because God's law is internalized. Number one, because God's law is internalized. Look at verse 33 as we continue. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. God will take his law, his will, his requirements, his instruction, and make it a part of who his people are on the deepest level. Their heart, the place of their deepest desires, as we might say their mind or their motivation or their will. Scripture is clear. It's not as if there was something wrong with the law itself. As Paul says in Romans 7, the law is holy and good. It wasn't the law that was bad or corrupt, but the sinfulness of the people under the law. You see, the law was external. It stood outside of the people. It could only tell them what to do, but it could not make them able to do it. And thus the law, which could not address the problem of human sin, ultimately led to Israel's exile. The old covenant was proven to be inadequate. But while obedience was one of those things required of the people under the old covenant, under the new covenant, obedience is actually one of the things promised by God for his people. Jeremiah's language alludes to how the Ten Commandments were written on stone tablets. He says, instead of writing his law on stone tablets, in this new covenant, God will write them on stony hearts and transform them into hearts that beat after God. Notice how Jeremiah speaks of the condition of the heart elsewhere as well. And you don't have to turn to these passages, just listen to them. Jeremiah 5.23 But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and departed. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Instead of being utterly wicked and rebellious, these hearts will now yield to God's law. It's a reversal of Jeremiah 17.1. Hear Jeremiah 17.1. The sin of Judah is written down with an iron stylus. With a diamond point, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart. Instead of being tattooed with the portrait of sin, in the new covenant, the heart of God's people will now be engraved with his law. How does this happen? How does this come about? And we look at the other prophets in the Old Testament, we see that this comes about through the work of the Holy Spirit. Hear the words of Ezekiel in chapter 36, 26 to 27. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. How? How is this going to happen, Ezekiel? I will put my spirit within you, 
and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. How is God's law written on the hearts of his people? God's very own spirit is given to those people, takes control of those people, transforms their stony, cold, unresponsive hearts to fleshy hearts that beat after God. And this is anticipated and spoken of elsewhere. Even within the Old Covenant itself, it it, it points to its own inadequacy and anticipates a day in which God will give his people transformed hearts. Here, Deuteronomy 36. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. And Paul speaks about these realities as being true for Christians. In 2 Corinthians 3, especially verse 3, Paul describes believers as letters, quote, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, like the old covenant, external, but on the tablets of human hearts. The law is written on the human heart. Romans 7, 6, in contrast to being under the law, under the old covenant, we now serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. That is, not in terms of the law that is merely external, but but one that has become a part of who we are through the work of the spirit. And in Romans 8, 4, Paul says that the requirement of the law is fulfilled in us who walk according to the Spirit. In other words, we begin to meet the expectations of God's law. We fulfill it through the work of this new covenant Spirit. This means that all true God-loving obedience is not something that we can achieve in and of ourselves. All of us are born, as Jeremiah said, with hearts, tattooed with a diamond point stylus of sin. There is nothing we can do in our own strength to fix that, to fix ourselves. It requires, Israel's history proves it, the gracious act of God to transform us by his spirit. Our place in this salvation from our sinfulness is, as the New Testament makes explicitly clear, to merely receive it by faith. But also we see from this text that if we are a part of this saved community that Jeremiah is speaking of, this this new covenant community, those who have placed their faith in Christ, obedience is required. It's not optional. It's a necessary part of the salvation that God provides us in the new covenant. We've been talking a lot about, and we will continue to talk about, ways in which the new covenant is not like the old covenant. But one way in which the new covenant is not new is God's standard of obedience. The gospel of grace and the fact that we are not saved by our works does not somehow eliminate the need for those works. God's salvation purposes involve his purposes to restore a people 
that is faithful to him. Obedience is required. And so the new covenant, our covenant, is a better covenant than the old covenant because God's law is internalized. And number two, our covenant is a better covenant because a perfect relationship with God is achieved. Number two, a perfect relationship with God is achieved. Look at the end of verse 33. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, God, if you know the Old Testament well enough, you know that God chose Israel. He redeemed them out of Egypt in the Exodus. And he established his relationship with them, formalized it in the covenant at Sinai. He's their God, by definition of those things. So what exactly does Jeremiah mean, and God speaking through Jeremiah, when he says that God will be, future tense, their God? He must mean something more than those things. This formula, I will be their God and they shall be my people, is used all throughout Scripture. You may have run across it. And interestingly, it's always used in the context of and in association with God's covenants with his people. What it seems to do is spell out God's intended goal in the covenants, in the covenant relationship. That God would be able to restore his people back to his original tension that he had in the Garden of Eden. A pure unhindered relationship with God, a mutual, loving, and faithful commitment between God and his people. But as we've seen, the relationship between God and his people in the Old Testament was far from fulfilling that covenant goal. I think it's helpful here to use marriage as a way to understand this sort of relationship. We may not often think this way, but marriage is actually, biblically speaking, a covenant commitment. It's a covenant commitment. And because marriage is a covenant commitment, God often depicts his covenant commitment with his people in terms of a marriage. And likewise, Christ and the church is depicted as husband and bride, a marriage as well. Marriage is the most intense sort of relationship possible among humans. It even surpasses that of the family. So if we think of Genesis 2, verse 24 says that man shall leave his parents and join himself to his wife. The biological family is no longer this primary social unit. It's now this new family unit created by marriage. It's the most intense sort of relationship. There is a raw level of intimacy in marriage that is to be experienced nowhere else. And so God uses this sort of relationship to express the sort of intimacy and mutual commitment that he desires between himself and his people. Just stop and think about that. That the God of this universe who holds the stars in place and created this, this, this great world that we live in. We look at the stars, we look at how amazing a God who makes this must be. And he wants a relationship with us of mutual 
commitment. He condescends and makes covenants with people. He enters history. He writes himself into the story because of these sort of relationships he desires. And yet Israel breaks this marriage relationship with God. And as Scripture says, Israel plays the whore. She commits what is in effect spiritual adultery by being unfaithful to God and the covenant relationship with him. God's covenant intention for a perfect relationship with his people is not yet achieved. Yet what was not not achieved under the old covenant is now accomplished in the new covenant. Christ purifies and transforms his bride so that this perfect marriage covenant relationship is now achieved. This is the relationship that we have in the new covenant with God through the gospel of Christ. Think about the last time you were at a wedding. I know I've had like two weddings in the past two weeks. It's wedding season. Think about the last time you were at a wedding. Marriage depicts this relationship as we've discussed. In your mind, paint the picture of that wedding. You're in the, you're in the pew, you're in the chair. The, the doors open or whatever in the back and there's the bride If you are a believer, you're that bride. She's adorned in pure white, representing a purity that we have not achieved on our own, but a purity that Christ achieves for us. I want you to do one other thing. In your imagination, as you're picturing this wedding, you see that bride adorned in white. She's walking down the aisle. Glance at the groom. Look down the aisle at the groom. The groom is smiling his face off. He is so excited. Okay? Maybe his eyes are watering. There's a tear trickling down his face. That's Christ. He's not merely the one who purifies the bride, but he's the one who takes intense joy in her. I will be their God and they will be my people a relationship of mutual commitment, mutual joy in the other. This new covenant is a better covenant than the old covenant because this perfect relationship with God, this perfect relationship that we see in marriage, is achieved. Number three, the new covenant, our covenant, is a better covenant than the old covenant because all of God's people know him. Number three, because all of God's people know him. Beginning in verse 34, they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. Now I want you to notice how how Jeremiah uses this, this concept of knowing Elsewhere, Jeremiah 9.3, again, you don't have to turn there, but just listen. Jeremiah 9.3, they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Notice how the not knowing is parallel with doing evil. Knowing involves not only knowledge about God for Jeremiah, but also a personal relationship to God, one of 
and this is key, submission to his will. Jeremiah 22.16 says that, Is not this what it means to know me? God speaking. What does it mean to know me? Is this not what it means? What is it? To plead the cause of the afflicted and the needy. That is, to do what God commands. In other words, the new covenant, in the new covenant, all know God in this way. Each person embraces a personal knowledge of God and submits to his will. They embrace his will. As Jeremiah says elsewhere in 6.13 and 8.10, he says, quote, from the, For from the least of them to even the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain. But rather now in the new covenant, from the least of them to the greatest of them, all know God. In this new covenant, there is no need for what we might call today evangelism. Telling others about the good news for them to need to be converted. There's no need for this within the covenant community itself. Within the church. There is no need for someone to go to a member of this covenant and say, you need to know God because all in this covenant community already know him in this way. This doesn't eliminate the need to evangelize the world or to preach the gospel as we're doing today, or to have teachers, or to encourage and challenge one another as believers. But what it does mean, we want to get this straight, what it does mean is that part of the fundamental meaning of being a Christian, being a member of the church, being a part of the new covenant community, means that you relate to God in saving faith and in submission to his will. All know God. And this is contrary to the Old Covenant, which was composed of believers who were following after God and those who were not. It was a mixed community of believers and unbelievers, of faithful and rebellious. And we see this in the story of Israel. They constantly rebel against God. They violate the covenant. And they find themselves ultimately in exile. But the new covenant addresses this problem of human rebellion. How does it do this? As already mentioned in the text, all come to know God because his law becomes a part of who they are through the work of the Spirit. As Jeremiah 24 says, I will give them a heart to know me. I'll give them a heart to know me. I think of Numbers 11.29 where Moses envisions a day in which all of God's people would be prophets. That is, not merely a select few will possess this spirit of prophecy, but all will possess the spirit. And this day has arrived in Christ. As Peter proclaims in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, this spirit that was once privileged by a select few such as the prophets has now been granted to all of God's people in fulfillment of Moses' expectation and later Joel's prediction. So again, any notion of salvation as a merely get-out-of-hell-free card falls apart when you look at the breadth and scope of God's plan of salvation. He's not merely interested in canceling our sin debt, although he is very much interested in doing that. But he's also interested in recreating a new humanity that is fully transformed 
That means they know him and they're committed to his will. And this is exactly what Christ accomplishes for us in the new covenant. The new covenant, our covenant, is a better covenant than the old covenant because all of God's people, all of the new covenant people, know him. And number four, the new covenant, our covenant, is a better covenant than the old covenant because sin is definitively dealt with. Sin is definitively dealt with. Look at the end of verse 34. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. As one commentator puts it, Quote, the Lord will write his law on heart, hearts polished smooth by forgiveness. The Lord will write his law on hearts polished smooth by forgiveness. Now notice how he's using the word remember. It implies taking action on what is being brought to mind. Hear Jeremiah 14.10 and hear how he uses the word Remember. Thus says the Lord to his people, Even so have they have loved to wander. They have not kept their feet in check. Therefore the Lord does not accept them. Now, he will remember their iniquity and call their sins to account. He'll remember their iniquity and call their sins to account. In other words, when God remembers sin, punishment follows. Thus, to say that God will no longer remember sins is not to tell us that somehow God is forgetful. But that sin will be dealt with such that there is no longer a grounds for punishment. And when we think about iniquity and sin in this context, in the context of Jeremiah 31, in the context of the book of Jeremiah, in the context of the Old Testament prophets, when we think of iniquity and sin here, we should be thinking about exile. That's immediately what the original readers of this text would have thought of. The wages of Israel's sin was national death, exile. And so when we hear sin in this context, we should be thinking, that's the thing that caused the exile. That's the thing which brought about this absolutely devastating situation. And remember, the exile isn't just a random, unfortunate, historical event. It's the anti-fulfillment of God's covenant purposes to restore his creation and his people. In the Old Testament, the exile was the ultimate reality testifying to the problem of human sin. And again, this isn't merely Israel's sin, but we see a reflection of ourselves in Israel's history, of our own struggle with sin, and the exile that we all face ever since Adam and Eve were exiled out of God's presence. And this is why the New Testament presents Christ in some already sense as beginning to fulfill the end of Israel's exile. Because the exile is the result of disobedience and sin, Christ's perfect obedience and death blow to sin in his cross and resurrection 
is the end of exile for all who trust in him. Exile was first and foremost a spiritual problem. A problem of sin. And inasmuch as Christ deals with sin and is the end of sin, he is the end of exile for all who trust in him. Christ took the punishment for our sin and experienced exile from God for us, crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Such that all who trust in Christ and his rescuing work on their behalf have already passed through exile in Christ and are restored in right relationship to God. We partake of a better covenant because our covenant does not result in exile due to sin, but in salvation due to our Savior. And so in summary, we partake of a better covenant. Our new covenant is a better covenant than the old covenant, number one, because God's law is internalized. Number two, perfect, a perfect relationship with God is achieved. Number three, all in this new covenant community know God. And number four, sin is definitively dealt with. Let's pray. God, what glorious truths we sit under as we look at this text. As we think of Israel's history and we think about how it's a mirror image of our own condition and our own experience with sin under your law, of how desperately we needed you to rescue us, of how inadequate any attempt to reform ourselves would be, but that we needed not only something to tell us what to do, but we needed you to actually grant us and change us so that we would be able to do it. We are amazed that you have done this in Christ, that Christ has received the Spirit and he's granted it to us. That this perfect relationship with you is now achieved through Christ, and ultimately we will experience the full measure of that perfect relationship when Christ comes and there is the marriage uh, supper of the Lamb, that we will, be, we will be united with you forever, and you will be our God to the fullest extent, and we will be your people in the fullest way that that phrase means. We thank you that you have made us a people that all of us are able to know you. We ask that you would continue to work in us, that we would, that we would know you more, that we'd be further and further submitted to your will as we look to that final day when we will know you in the fullest extent and be 100% submitted to your will. We ask that you, your spirit would work in us, that we would begin to achieve that more and more as we battle sin. And God, we thank you that you have dealt with sin in Christ that you made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ, that he, that he took upon himself that exile-causing sin and experienced that wrath of exile for us. So that even now we see the exile that we all face and that we, we see in Israel's history as, as beginning to fade away. 
and is definitively dealt with in Christ. We thank you so much for these things. As we, as we look upon this text and as we go from here, may you work in us to create in us a, a bigger vision of the salvation you've accomplished for us, a, a greater joy, a more intense pleasure in the salvation that we have. Make us, make us a people that is so excited about the gospel, about this new covenant that we have, and that we would go from here and just let it motivate every aspect of our lives, that we would want to share it with others as well, that we would fully be this new covenant community that you have achieved for us in Christ. Amen.